All right. Welcome to Ordinary Savages podcast and website. I am here today with a good friend of mine, a wonderful friend of mine, somebody I look up to, someone I learn from, someone I grow with, uh, Fred Pinto. Uh, Fred and I, we've, I don't know, we've probably known each other for less than a year now. And the incredible things that I've listened to and learned from you, Fred, are, uh, are magical, in my opinion. And what I want to do today, Fred, if, uh, if it's okay, introduce yourself to everybody and then we'll get right into the, the good stuff. Yeah, sure. So, so first of all, thank you, Chris, for uh, making the space for us to, to discuss. I always uh, love our conversations and it always goes in, in, in all these different fascinating directions. So, um, and everything you've said about me, I reciprocate from you as well. I've learned so much from you just in the past year and it's an honor to call you a friend and to share this educational space with you. Um, you. So, so thank you. Thank you for making some time for this. Thank you. So, so, so tell yeah. us about you, man. Tell us where yeah. you come from, where you hail and et cetera. You got the, yeah. obviously the Canadian twang. So that's right. Talk, <laughs> talk so, so to I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm based in Montreal, Canada. This is where I, I, I was born and grew up. Um, I'm a lawyer, uh, an IP lawyer by trade for, for a very, very long time. That's really what, what it was all about for me, just becoming, you know, the best lawyer I possibly could be. Uh, very early in my career, I worked in, in big law firms. Um, and, and, you know, very, very quickly, um, you know, I loved the work. I loved the sophisticated, complex work in the technology space and in the, in the entertainment space. That stuff that really, really attracted me. Uh, but I hated the culture. The culture was just not me. I didn't like the way they treated people. I didn't like how it was all about like squeezing every dime and every dollar out of everybody, clients and lawyers included. Um, I just didn't like the politics, the ego. And so very early in my career, I worked in, in that environment for maybe four or five years. And, and, and pretty early on um, in my career, right after that, um, I, I just basically branched off and started doing my own thing. Um, and that was about, um, you know, about 14 years ago that I, that I made that move. Um, and since then I've been uh, running my own uh, practice, a very successful practice in IP um, since we branched off into other areas like um, data protection law, privacy law, uh, civil rights um, uh, challenges of certain laws, um, transactional M&A in the tech space. And um, it's, been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. And you know, where I am now, Chris, when we, we met each other uh, about uh, a year ago, was when I was kind of like in the process of, of doing another shift in my career where it's becoming more and more for me about education and less and less about professional services. I still own and run um, a successful law practice. But for me at this point, it's really about the learning. I realized that's what I was really passionate about. Um, yeah. That's what I always loved. And I just want to be able to dedicate more and more of my time to the thing that really makes me feel connected and makes me feel like I'm growing, which is just nonstop learning and then if I can pass on that learning and help somebody, that's just what makes me feel alive and connected and excited. And so, so yeah, that's why, I mean, any opportunity I get for any kind of educational um, experience or an opportunity to learn or an opportunity to teach, that's, that's what really excites me at this point in my life. Yeah. And, and so what I've learned about you is obviously an incredible lawyer. You've been on some incredible cases on the litigation side. We've talked a lot about uh, mergers and acquisitions and how do we optimize an exit, which is, you know, both of our businesses outside of what we're talking about today. Yep. Um, incredible, right? You have your own course, a very successful course you launched this year. 
uh, fit to exit with your uh, colleague, Mike Smiken. That's right. But here today, we're, we're, not, we're talking about something that's outside of those two perspectives. And within, which to me is, you know, you always, you always wonder, like, coincidence, right? Coincidence, coincidence is, is that I met you a year ago and we were talking about law and economics and damages. And here we are a year later and we're talking about something that has almost nothing to do with that, right? We're talking about meaning, purpose, why you're here, how do you find meaning? And you and I kind of like, we clicked, right? Because, you know, I have the book in front of me, right? We've, we've read uh, Frankel, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. We've had time, we've talked about Aristotle, Plato, Tony Robbins, who you and I are both a, a fan of, yeah, uh, and and so and so many other people. So, I, I just I just one love the fact that you, uh, your colleague Mike Smikin and others, we all have so many of these interesting crossovers. You know, it's not just intellectual. It's not just about how do we make a living and make money. But here we're talking about something that's a little bit more uh, surreal, obtuse, philosophical, right? So what I would love for you to do is tell us a little bit about yourself, right? Because you know, almost none of us come to this body of knowledge without going through some struggle. hundred percent. Did you go through any of the struggle? A hundred percent. And it, it's, it's, you know, we look at struggle externally, like events that happen to me, and certainly there are those, but that's always just a reflection of some inner struggles that you're going through, Right you don't really fully understand how the pieces fit. And so when external events happen to you, it causes a lot of cognitive dissonance and a lot of stress and anxiety. And, and certainly I've lived, I mean, so just, just to back up, give you a little bit of context, okay? If you met me um, five, six years ago, I, um, you know, there's Alcoholics Anonymous, like I, I should have been a member of like Rationalists Anonymous or like Cynics Anonymous. I was, a hardcore, um, cynical, rationalist hedonist. That was my my entire frame of mind. Wow. Right. Yeah, that's that's truly like the best way I could describe. And I'm talking for like a couple of decades. Like that was the perspective that sort of took shape. And that was sort of my macro frame of life, right? And I realized that, you know, where I grew up, it was really all about the, I mean, I grew up in a very uh, lower middle-class uh, background where nobody really, um, had done advanced schooling. Nobody had gone the professional services route. And, and where I grew up, there's a lot of love, a lot of affection. But really, when you attack the world, it was really all about like survival. So find a way to survive, <laughs> find a way to like make enough money to like keep the, the heating on and like, you know, have some food on the table. And then the only real macro ideal that we had after that survival stage was enjoy life as much as you can, <laughs> right? It's like survival. We, we take it for granted, Chris, even today, many, many people out there are consumed by this quest for simple survival. Just literally keeping your head above water financially is for millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people all around the world consumes their energies on a daily basis, right? And that's sort of where I come from. I come from a very similar environment to that. So it was all about that survival, like do what you got to do, do what you got to do, whatever you're talented at, whatever you're good at, just keep doubling down on that. And for me, it ended up being schooling and law. It's something that, that really, um, I always loved ideas, always loved words, always loved literature that really attracted me. 
But beyond that, the real, and we had family values and stuff, obviously, but the unspoken code that we had was survive and then enjoy life as much as you can. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's really what it was. And so from that perspective, Chris, the deepest question in my framework that I could possibly ask myself, it's a question that you're going to, I'm sure some of your listeners are going to recognize. It's a question that really rings a lot in the zeitgeist is what do I really want? Right. You know, you, yeah, you're sure. Of course. That question, right. Yeah, of course. What do I really want? Right. The assumption being that desire will point the arrow for you in the right direction. Right. Yeah. And, and there are many, many ways of answering that question, right? Because desire for what, right? Desire, it could be a desire for, for good things, a desire for connection. It could also be a desire for, um, I just want to feel good, right? And, and I always find it very funny because a lot of people define, um, what is it do I really want? They say, well, I want to feel happy or I want to feel good. That's what I really want. And so that becomes a, an ideal that's very, very hard to live by, Chris, because so <laughs> philosophically, the question here is this. If all you want to do is feel good and I could give you a pill that gives you all of the effects of MDMA with none of the drawbacks, this is the question for you. Why would you not stay in an apartment or in or anywhere, in fact, and keep taking this pill over and over and over again? Why would you ever stop taking the pill? you're just not going to feel as good and go into the world and live life. Right. Yes. Like that's really the question. Right. And it's a bit of a, of a philosophical game, but truly when all we're doing is a quest for just feeling good. And I speak as, um, as, as a former hedonist, like this, this was literally my life for 20, 25 years. Right. Um, it leads to, so much confusion and chaos and disorientation that you can't, you'll have a lot of moments where you feel really good. But what happens is it is not an orienting principle. This is not something that's going to give you a structured, meaningful journey, authentic journey on this planet where you can relate to others in a really profound, satisfying way, in a way that's really sustainable and authentic and builds up over time. Okay. For me, this question of what is it do I really want? I want to feel good. The end of this, the end of this, this, this way of thinking is a kind of cynical hedonism where it's like, well, what do I really want? Well, right now I really want some ice cream. I really want uh, to be a good basketball player. I really want um, um, to enjoy life with my friends. I really want, um, but I also really want to be a good lawyer. And I also want to be a good father. And so you end up with all these desires, each of which has their own behavioral consequences, each of which ask you to make certain choices and do certain things that may defeat another desire. <laughs> and what you end up living in is a kind of really complicated, chaotic, and disorienting lifestyle that really doesn't really serve you or others very well. And the things that it really ingrains in you, Chris, is the selfish perspective, right? It's the perspective that 
really it's all about how I feel on a moment to moment basis. And that, as we know, in the world of business, as we know, in the world of life, um, keeping that perspective and living with that perspective is um, extremely self-defeating because it dissolves your relationships. It dissolves, it completely eviscerates your, your capability to go beyond yourself, to connect to something bigger. And that was always the need that I was like, that was never satisfied. I always had a need to connect to something bigger. I always had a need to have a true authentic direction in life. And this hedonist paradigm was my biggest, uh, my biggest enemy. I was my own worst enemy. My adversary was the selfish, cynical, hedonistic paradigm that kept frustrating me and preventing me from, from touching this, this, this greater connection that I was really craving. So do I, do I hear this right? For you, you're not a selfish gene. Right to use the words of, uh, or, or, or I am not only a selfish gene. Okay, so 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 you believe a little bit with what a Richard Dawkins would suggest is, you know, part of us is self-interested, right? But uh, but you're also adding something that's that's different, right? You're 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 suggesting, hey Chris, if we just act out of our own, uh, let's bring in some of the psychology. If we act out of our own uh, subconscious, which is you know, animalistic. Hey, I need this, or I need this, or I want this, or, you know, and you act almost like a pig if we were to use uh, Bentham yeah. and Mill and their, their ideology. You're not going to, you're not going to accomplish anything or achieve anything of greatness. Well, okay. So the problem is, is, is to me deeper than just achievement. Okay. The problem, and this is where the writings of Viktor Frankl uh, were so um, unbelievably um, helpful to me because it gave me a framework where finally, and you have to understand in this crazy hedonistic quest where I was actually looking for a connection to something greater, I actually wanted to be a small part of something big. I actually wanted to have a direction into the world that kept expanding and connecting me to other people more and more and more, right? Um, that's what I really wanted. If, if I we really wanted to define it that way, that's what I really wanted deep down. But I had all these surface desires, desire to feel good, to party, to you know, eat better and better food to be it like, you know, travel and, and, and just like explore all these different experiences, which was locking me into a selfish paradigm of feeling good on a moment to moment basis, regardless of the deeper consequences. When I read Viktor Frankl for the first time, I just found that simple framework that he establishes around logotherapy, where he says, well, it's very simple. So the, all of the great psychotherapists see at the root of the human condition, not um, necessarily uh, just abstract scientific laws. At the root of our subjective consciousness is a desire or a will, a fundamental will, okay? For Freud, that fundamental will is the id, the desire for pleasure, right? So, Formerly, I would have agreed with Freud. That was my deepest desire. My deepest desire was the desire for pleasure. Alfred Adler's school says that it's the will to power, right? Nietzsche would agree with him, right? Of course, yeah, is, of course, yeah. Yeah, so your most fundamental desire is to have power over others. And, you know, society doesn't let you have it and messes up with that desire. So you start having anxiety and depression. You start putting yourself in question. You've got all these issues, right? That's the fundamental desire that is frustrated by society. 
according to Frankel, and this, this just, man, this just hit me like so hard. And all of these things are assumptions, right? They're assumptions that build a system of psychotherapy or understanding man and his fundamental human condition and how then should he live his life, right? Um, for Frankel, he says the most fundamental desire is not the desire for pleasure and it's not the desire for power. It's the desire for meaning. It's the desire to be profoundly connected to something bigger and to have your individual experience resonate way beyond your own personal experience, okay? And, and he, he, he's got great passages in his books where he talks about uh, you know, Freud's, Freud's view and Adler's view. And he's like, look, even the desire for pleasure, he says, even that, he goes, that's just the theory. Because the yeah. theory is that if I can satisfy my desire, I will then feel connected and I will then feel ah, relieved, right? It's not true. You become Fred, an addict. One thing that might be that might be helpful here, if yeah. we can, let's just go back two minutes and let's let's establish who Frankel is. Yeah. Because some people who are going to be watching, especially if they're my students, they're going to have read, hopefully have read the materials from Frankel, but... There's other people that are going to be seeing this video and might say, who, who is this guy, Viktor Frankl, and his book? Why is it so important? Yeah. And, and especially this week, right? It's the uh, anniversary of the Holocaust, if I remember correct. So mm -hmm. what, a, what a week to be talking about this. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Viktor Frankl is a guy who was um, um, a psychiatrist in Vienna in the 1930s and 40s. And... Um, right before uh, the rise of the Nazi party and um, obviously eventually World War II. Um, and when he was young, he was um, the head psychiatrist of a large hospital in Vienna. And, um, you know, he was always working on his theory. And obviously there was a lot of amazing, um, you know, um, work in this area, in that, in, that, in, in that region at the time. So he was always piecing together his theories about, you know, what explains all of these psychological issues that I'm seeing in a clinical setting. And when um, the Nazi party starts sweeping across, across Europe, he has an opportunity to move to the United States. And, but his parents were still in Vienna and were very, very old. And he was faced with a dilemma. He was like, what do I do? My parents can't travel with me. Do I stay with them or do I just leave, take this opportunity? I see this is not going in a good direction in Europe. What do I do? And he just by fluke, opened up a book, a prayer book that to the first thing he opened up and he had this question was like, you know, tormenting him, opens up a book of prayer. And the first sentence he lays eyes on is the divine commandment to respect your mother and your father. And he chooses to interpret that to mean there is no way I can leave my parents here. I need to stay. So he decides to stay in Europe. At the time, he's got a wife and his wife is pregnant with their first child, okay? Eventually, they all get rounded up to go to concentration camps. And they spend years in concentration camps. Him and his wife get separated. Um, him and all of his family get separated. And he becomes sort of a resident psychiatrist in the concentration camp. He is a Jew, so he is obviously um, um, treated as a prisoner. But, you know, prisoners who had some useful skill of some kind would still be used in a way that they can help. So he was 
helping counsel people here and there, but at the same time, not having any shoes and at the same time, like, you know, being beaten. And sometimes you'd go in a lineup and they tell you, you go right, you go left. And it was complete chance as to whether or not you were going to get shot in the head or not. Right. And, and the first half of his great book, Man's Search for Meaning, is just a very graphic, tactile description of life in the concentration camps that he wrote in a nine day period after he, after he was liberated um, uh, by the Americans and the allied forces um, in 1945, nine days, he wrote this whole account. So it is very, very graphic and descriptive and very, very raw and real. Okay. When you read that, that account. Um, and, and he said his perspective on what shapes man's psyche was shaped most powerfully during these experiences in the concentration camp where he kept noticing over and over that the people who were able to withstand and survive this absolutely horrendous nightmarish situation in the concentration camps were people who had something to live for they were looking to be reunited with a loved one they were looking to um, achieve something in the outside world they had a child they couldn't leave behind. They had uh, something, some mission that was waiting for them. And he said, in my own case, it was two things. Two things kept me alive in the concentration camps. Number one was the very thought of my wife and being reconnected to my wife and seeing my unborn child. And he says, rationally, I knew that that may never be the case, that they might perish, that I may perish. But the very thought of them, the very fact that I had hope alone gave me something to live for, a reason not to give up. Yeah. And the other thing that kept him alive, so when he was interned into the concentration camp for the first time, he had a manuscript of his book that he was working on. First thing that happens when he's in the camp, that book gets confiscated from him, never to be seen again. This idea that he needs to complete his book and he needs to give his lectures and he needs to use these experiences that he's living in the concentration camp to better help people understand what's going to make them really rooted and survive through any terrible circumstance that may happen to them. And certainly like our circumstances are not 2020 hashtag worst year ever. No, no, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not true. Okay. That's because yeah. <laughs> we've been so lucky to be so live in such cush and and comfort okay our whole lives that let's let's thank the greater powers that we experience this as the worst possible thing we can imagine because let me tell you man it doesn't take a lot of reading and a lot of uh, studying to understand how deep it can go uh, in the human experience okay and certainly uh, the things that Viktor Frankl lived through was so what ended up happening is and, and he, he would he would notice that when a when a um when, 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 when somebody in the concentration camps would lose their hope for something better, he says, we would notice right away, we would talk to each other and we'd say, oh, he's lost it. He's lost. It. There would be a look in their eyes. And he says, we knew that within a few days they would die. He says, we would notice it with small things. Like they would let a cigarette burn, like, and look in the distance and not even worry about turning off the cigarette, something like that. You would notice it in small little acts like that. As soon as somebody had lost their purpose, their sense of meaning, their sense of it, my life matters. As soon as they lost that, 
he says it would usually be a couple of days. They would catch a tuberculosis. They would catch a disease. They would find a way to die. They would almost volunteer to die. And what's really fascinating, Chris, is that at the end of all of this, mm -hmm. Viktor Frankl never was reunited with his wife and unborn child because they got killed. So his rational suspicion that they, this may never, right? He may never see them again. That ended up being born. His family essentially was wiped out during that experience. And, and when he left the concentration camps, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning in nine days. That became uh, an unbelievable um, um, bestseller all over the world and, and helps people to this day. And me in 2018, read that book, completely revolutionized me, allowed me to put the pieces together in a way that finally made sense, finally gave me an understanding of how I could find my purpose in life and really, really helped me, like, right, decades later. And um, he ended up uh, uh, reconstructing his life um, building a very, very successful practice where he helped hundreds, hundreds and thousands of people find their purpose, find their meaning. And so his very life experience itself stands as the best example of his theories, which is it does not matter what happens to you in life. It doesn't matter how dire the, con the, the, the circumstances are. Nobody can take away from you what he calls the last of the human freedoms, which is your ability to decide what you stand for, what your life means, what you want to live for. Nobody can take that away from you. Even in the concentration camps, uh, uh, Nazi soldiers with guns to your head cannot rob you from that last human freedom. And so it's a very, it's, it's a reality that is born in a very dark circumstance, but it's in a sense, the, mo the most deeply hopeful and optimistic of all philosophies. And that's what really resonated with me super deeply. So this incredibly awful experience, uh, he gets through it, he survives. He ultimately loses the hope that he thought he was going, that was keeping him alive. And then he creates logotherapy. Yeah. Right? Um, there's so much in, uh, in Viktor Frankl that I think relates to personally me uh, in Christianity in particular. Um, sort of a topic for a different day, but it, it has a lot of, a lot of similarities. When yeah. you can see what you're living for, you tend to want to continue to live that way. Yeah. So, but, you know, before, before we jump into logotherapy though, I, I'd like to, um, because you said something with the cigarette example, and I missed that. And I've, I've read this book and read it a few times. And, um, you know, when somebody's smoking a cigarette in this concentration camp and they let it die out and maybe it burns their leg maybe it doesn't yeah. it creates pollution whatever you know so many so many what different ways we can look at that when you see somebody who's letting themselves and let's just say in our everyday culture they're letting themselves mm. you know, their health deteriorate mm. their their relationships deteriorate their uh they're, they're letting their car break down. They're not taking care of the things that yeah, yeah, themselves, yeah. their home, their relationships, their family, their children, et cetera. That is, a mark, that is a mark of a lack of purpose, lack of meaning. That, 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 that is a mark of, of cynicism, uh, nihilism, lack of belief, lack of yeah. hope. That, that is a clear mark when you have that surrounding chaos and a almost a um, dispassionate lack of caring so yes, that, that resonates. Uh, you definitely see that with a lot of people. 
Yeah, and that's what I'm, you know, I'm trying to take Frankel and bring it, you know, look, no, hopefully none of us will ever experience the atrocities that he had to deal with. But, you know, I'm trying to figure out how can we take the trials yeah. of life, right? Because we're all dealing with trials of life every single yeah, day, yeah, yeah. right? How do I take the trials of life? How do I find people? How can I spot them? Um, because, you know, we want to share this information. And I'm hoping that I can share this information with many business people because I think business people deal with, especially entrepreneurs, deal with some incredibly uh, uh, awful, not awful, but some, some incredible challenges, right? And they, they might fail at something and they get down on themselves. They let themselves yeah. fall apart a little bit. So you think that this is a sign we can, we can spot people who are starting to quit, right? They're yeah. losing that vision of their wife and their kids. Mm-hmm. I can use Frankel's uh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Wonderful. So talk to us about logotherapy. It sounds so scientific. So, 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 so this is really key, Chris. This is really yeah. key because when you, when you talk about that, those challenges, and then we go, we use this long concept, logotherapy. We're very much in the head. We're very much in the intellect, right? And, you know, to take another question that we, we all know and we've all asked and unsuccessfully tried to answer, what is the meaning of life? Yeah, well, it's been going on for thousands of years, right? Yeah, what, what is the meaning of life? So the issue with any question, I'll tell you as a lawyer, <laughs> before, be careful the question that you answer because a question always subtly and, 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 and unconsciously marries you to certain assumptions. Mm-hmm. It already, a question already starts framing your mind and pr- orienting your mind in a certain direction. What is the meaning of life is the wrong question, Chris. Yeah. From the standpoint of logotherapy, I'll tell you why. These are the assumptions. Number one, meaning excludes the I, right? Meaning is a what? What is the meaning of life? It excludes the I. Number two, meaning is a what? It's an object, it's a thing that I could describe, right? It's not a who, it's not a why, it's not a how, and it's not a when. That's another assumption. The other assumption is um, there is only one meaning for all of life. What is the meaning of life, right? So the the implies singularity, implies one meaning. If you come up with one meaning, no matter how beautiful and great it is, okay, um, all I need to do, it's the ultimate black swan argument. All I need to do is come up with one instance of where this was not the meaning for somebody and your entire argument is, so it's a very, very uh, fragile sentence, right? And then the other one is, this one single meaning is unchanging over time for absolutely everybody, right? So that's another assumption. What if our meanings and purposes change? And this is where Viktor Frankl comes in and says, first of all, <laughs> meaning is not found. Meaning is not, meaning is not given. Meaning is found, okay? Nobody can come from the top down and tell you what the meaning is for all of life, mm-hmm. okay? Nobody can do that because for every single human being, there is a unique purpose that connects them to their life. Let me let, let, let me just let, let, let's let's really drill down and let's really defeat the intellect here. Okay. Let's say the meaning of my life was to create beautiful music. I want to create beautiful music and share it with the world. That's what gives me meaning. Okay. And let's say the meaning of your life is the exact same thing. I want to create uh, beautiful music and share it with the world. Okay. 
Nonetheless, Frankl would say, our meanings are completely different because you might choose to do it in association with certain emotions that are completely different from mine. You might want to show something like calm and peaceful beauty through um, classical music violin. And I might want, my definition of beauty and sharing beauty with music might be, I want to convey the angst and frustration and sheer raw power of youth through gangster rap. Okay? We intellectually have the same meaning. But when you connect to all of the aspects of our human self, our meanings are completely unique and completely different, right? So meaning does not exclude the I. And, and, and Frankl says, you know, people say, when I say this, people say that, well, you're, but meaning is relative. And if meaning is relative, if your meaning is different from my meaning is different from, from that other guy's meaning, that's relativism. And if it's relativism, then no meaning means anything. And he says, I speak rather purely intellectual, cynical position. He says, I speak rather of the uniqueness of meanings. Maybe the issue is not that we don't all have the same meaning. Maybe the issue for the intellect is that there is so much meaning available in the cosmos and the universe that not a single intellect on earth can ever encapsulate all of it, no matter how friggin' perfect they are intellectually. Maybe that's the issue. It explodes the intellect. And it completely is. transcends the intellect. And so that's where, when you get into the concept of meaning, I say the first act, meaning is not something you have to construct intellectually. It's not something you need to study from a mentor, from a guru. You need to listen to Chris Young or Fred Pinto to figure out, no, it's none of that. The first act that you need to do towards finding meaning is an act of remembering. You need to use your memory and you need to start thinking of a moment in your life where you felt really, really at home, where you felt really, really connected, where you felt authentically yourself. I am complete in this moment. I know who I am. I know how I relate with the world. Think about it. It could be when you were five years old. I give this Finding Meaning course. People give the most beautiful, people in their 70s say, you know, I was a five-year-old little girl and I was just on the lawn and I was just looking around at these flowers and I just felt, and so you'll, you'll hear a lot of these experiences of connection with nature. You'll hear a lot of people at key moments in their lives when they were really, really connected to their family or to a broader community and everybody was there and cared for each other. These are what I call meaning clues. Meaning clues are moments in your life, in your past, where you felt authentically, completely connected, whole, complete, authentic. What were you doing during these experiences? Who were you with? What are they about? And you could start mapping out your meaning orientation and starting to understand the process of who you really are. Because the problem with meaning, uh, Chris, is not that we, our intellect is insufficient to defining it. The problem with meaning is that we know, we know how to live with meaning, but for some reason we forget. We forget another part of our personality uh, takes over.
We start listening to certain desires. We start wanting to conform to others' expectations of us. We start, you know, uh, wanting to satisfy certain definitions of success or self-realization, or we have financial goals or whatever. So we forget the first act we have to do is not to define. The first act is an act of remembering. So it's a different process. So what I'm hearing you say is that in order to find meaning, we cannot use, we cannot define ourselves against others. It, ha it has to be clearly in, in inward looking. That's right. right? It, starts, it starts with the inward. But when you, you'll notice, it starts with an, as an inner journey. But meaning is an inner journey that connects you to an external journey, to an outer journey. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to imply bridges between the self and the non-self. It could be between you and another, other people, the way that you relate to people, the way that you relate to community, the way that you relate to nature, the way that you relate to cosmos, to the mysteries of, of, right? But to find that authentic connection, you need to start with, start with yourself. Start so, with that. So let's, let's, let's think about this for a second. Yeah. I'm a student in college and everybody told me, go study business, go study law, go study politics. Mm -hmm. And the reason they tell you to do that is because you'll find, you'll get a good job. Yeah. And a good job leads to a nice paycheck, which leads to having a nice home, which yeah. leads to having yeah. a couple kids and going to a nice school. Yeah. All external. And all, all external. You are, you're yeah. in a tough spot from a meaning perspective right off the bat. And, yeah. and I was, I was one of you, and yeah. I stayed in that paradigm for decades. So I've got a lot of compassion. I'm not out here saying, like, I, I, I struggled like more than anybody with these questions. So, so yeah, I hear so, you. So, so how do we, right? Somebody who's down the path, who spent a lot of money to go to college, right? Law, uh, lawyers who were in law school. Um, executives who have put all this time and money into their career yeah, and they're miserable. We know many people like that. Mm. So how, how do we help 100%. them find meaning? Because in their head, meaning is, and it's continually been, I need to make a half a million dollars because Jim next door makes a half a million or Mary next door makes a half a million. I need to have a 5,000 square foot. So house. already right off the bat, you're not playing the meaning game. I, I understand. You're playing the money game. That's cool. That's a theory. That's a theory. You have a theory of what's going to make you happy and what's going to make you sustainably, um, right? So that's yes. fine. You bought into that theory. But we have to change the definition. Yeah, that's right. Right. I mean, your definition is just like Frankl's definition and, and others. It's outside of looking at and comparing to others in the world. But for one reason or another, especially in a free market system, right? Very competitive system. Yeah. Meaning is not normally wrapped up in how much money I make, what kind of job do I have, how much power I have, go to the will of power with Nietzsche or, or Adler or go to any others, right? So how do we help people stop, right? Pause. And let's really think about what is it that really matters to you when it comes to meaning? That's right. That's right. So how so do we do that? A couple of angles, a couple of angles. So number one, it's all about connecting with yourself authentically, Okay. If, if being better than others is um, what really drives you deep down, um, number one, 
that is an external thing that depends on others, right? So that's not something that is intuitive and connected to yourself, like from day one, it's not, it's not rooted. It's something that is, it's very intellectual. It's very separated. It's very hard to live in a balanced, authentic way. If you start with such an external goal, number one, there's nothing wrong with having the external goal, but you should also listen to yourself authentically and say, okay, when is it? So being better than somebody else, that gives you a little bit of a jolt. I, I'm a very competitive guy. I love, I love, I love my athletics. I love my, I love to win. I just love it. I love competing. I love winning. I'm, I'm like, I love winning my lawsuits. I love outsmarting. I, I love that stuff, right? It just, it gives me a drive. It, it gives me an energy. It gives me a, but really where I was able to find meaning in competition is when I realized that what really drove me was the desire to be better, desire to reach excellence. It really wasn't so much about beating other, the fact that I'm beating someone. If I beat someone by cheating, I feel like a loser because I'm like, I had to cheat to win. So I don't get my winner's high. I only get my winner's high if I was able to overcome my inner weakness and I was able, so I realized it was really an inner journey of trying to be better than I was yesterday. It was really about that. That's where I find meaning. So I would say somebody who's competitive, I am not like, a, you know, I don't believe that that is like an unnatural desire or that is something that is that should be chastised in any way. But even that, you can look at it really deep down and say, okay, what does it really mean? You know, like I want to build the best product and therefore I want to have the most clients in the world. Beautiful. That means you really want to create the most value. And that's a virtuous process, right? Sure. If, yep. if you like, yeah. if you cheat people into buying your product and it's a garbage product and eventually, right? Like you don't really get that winner's high. <laughs> that winner's high can be a beautiful meaning inducing experience, right? So, 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 so number one is you want to drill down and you want to get really authentic and deep about what is it? that you're really looking for, number one. Number two, Chris, all of these external goals are normal. We need to survive in society. We need to, we, we see images in the media culture. We align on certain paths with certain goals. We're gonna have those desires. That's completely normal, okay? But what we don't want is we don't want those goals to overshadow our quest, our will to meaning, our desire to be, to have a clear direction that we feel is authentic for ourselves and our desire to touch and be connected to things that are bigger than ourselves. Those are the two fundamental components of meaning for me, direction and embeddedness. Okay. So it could be that you want to make $500,000, have all these beautiful goals, but if your sense of meaning you got when you were young, in a, a beautiful connection with your father or your mother or your family or nature or um, something like, like writing a story or whatever it is, right? You can start following that thread and you wanna make sure that your goals are not overshadowing your quest for meaning. There may be opportunities for you to keep your goals, but also live in a way that is authentic and in a way that is in line with your sense of purpose. So number two, so we overstate the conflict between our worldly goals and our quest for meaning. But the third one is where I think um, um, 
uh, we can find a lot of clarity intellectually. The first word in your question, Chris, was how. And I think that is a key question. It's not the same question as what. It's not the same question as who. It's not the same question as why. How is a different question. How implies a qualitative choice. How I'm going to do something, right? So it, it suggests alignment with certain qualities or with certain values, okay? You can do music and do it in an infinite number of ways. You can practice law or be in business or be an academic and do it an infinity number of ways. The question is, how will you be an academic that is in line with who you really are and really connects you, aligns you with your core values. So there's, a, there's this great, great, great exercise that uh, is recommended by a lot of uh, psych psychotherapists who study logotherapy that's called your admired figures exercise. So what you do is you'll take a couple of, a couple of people that you really, really admire, okay? And they could be from the, uh, 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 the fictional space. They could be from a, from, from a book, from a Marvel comic universe uh, movie. They could be from, from pop culture, from your family, from whatever, okay? And you just intuitively pick like two, three people that you really, really admire, okay? And then step two is, um, what are the qualities that made you admire these people? Why is it that you're admiring them? Well, because they did, they confronted challenges like this, or when this happened, they did this. And when, when, when this challenge would happen, they would always respond like this, you know, stuff like that. And then from there, you try to define what are your admired values. Okay. And it's very, very interesting when we do this exercise with people, Chris, you'll always find if people come up with two or three admired values, there will always be one or two that they are living on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's always going to be one or two that they're not living with. It's an admired value from a distance, but there's something holding them back from living in line with that value. It could be courage. Could be, in my case, Chris, my, 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 my two admired figures that I admire the most in my life was where my, my maternal grandmother who passed away this past summer. Okay. She's just like my hero and, and Wolverine. Okay. From, uh, from Marvel. And, the reasons why my maternal grandmother, she was just all about the love. She just didn't care. She, it was just, she was authentic. She wasn't afraid to get into somebody's face, but it was always with love, always with true, connected, authentic generosity of spirit. And just her spirit to me is just something I admire so much. I wish I could live that way. I can't. Sometimes I, I find myself unable to love on her level, you know? And Wolverine, it was because... Um, so he's a guy that doesn't like the institution. He's a guy that doesn't like, he's not part of the, you know, he's not like one of the students in uh, Professor X's uh, school. So yeah. he's not like an institutional character. He doesn't like the institutional definitions of what's good or bad, but he's got an unfailing sense of justice inside of him, of good and bad. And when the great war manifests itself, even though he lives like a rebel in everyday life, when the great war manifests itself, He's the number one soldier, man. He is there and he will sacrifice heart and soul. And mm -hmm. that's like that sense of courage and sacrifice is something I admire to no end. Me too. Those are gonna be Me too. My, those are going to be my admired values. And the yeah. question is, are you living in line with these admired values? Because living in line with your admired values itself generates meaning. It doesn't matter what you do. You can be in business. You can be in law school. You can have a career. You can make however money you want. But are you doing so in line with your admired values? 
If your values are to be honorable, to be reliable, to be loving, to be compassionate, to be courageous. You see, like to me, Chris, I just saw Icarus on the rushing doping scandal. Yeah. And those athletes, the thing that like, I don't want to be moralistic with these people. I want to talk to them as like fellow competitors. I'm like, guys, don't you find there's like something chicken shit about taking all this dope to like compete with your, like, why don't you just lose honorably? That's okay. You've done your best. You're not good enough. Fucking tough it out. You know? No, (laughs) it's like, we're going to cheat. It's like, it's such a coward mentality. Yes, it is. It's at odds with what an athlete is supposed to be. Indeed. So, what outcome? And it's not just athletes, right? It's, not just it's, athletes. it's business people. It's financial people. It's financial people. it's everywhere. It's it's. I mean, I I don't want to get into what's going on with COVID with some of these companies and teachers and all this, but like everybody's trying to cheat the system at the moment. Everybody's trying to game the system. Are yeah. those the values that they really admire? And I would put it to you that if we went one by one and we did this really authentic, intuitive exercise of what are your admired values, that not a single one of them would stand up here and say. I admire people who cheat others. I admire swindlers. I admire hypocrites. I admire people who say one thing and do another. That's what I love. That's what I admire. Those are my admired values. And if those are your admired values, um, I I don't think that you're playing the meaning game. I don't think you're looking for things that are authentically connected to yourself. I think you're lying to yourself. I think you're buying into a theory that money is going to provide you happiness, that money is going to provide you with purpose and direction. And my big problem with that, Chris, is not moralistic. My big problem is that I think you're wrong. I think you're technically wrong. I think it's inaccurate. These things do not create authentic, reciprocal, um, 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 long-term bridges based on mutual growth and sustainability. These things don't create that. It's it's a flawed theory of man that money and power will provide you with meaning. It's a flawed, I believe you are wrong, wrong. Let me, let me, throw, let me throw this out to you. Yeah. It's my worldview of money, success. Uh, this is what I did my, my, my TED talk on. Yeah. Most people, in my opinion, seek monetary gain, money, right? More so than anything, power. Uh, take Nietzsche into this, take Adler into this, right? Uh, probably a whole bunch of other philosophers who just kind of uh, talked about this, thought about this. We acquire money. We want money. We want power. Yes, we want things, right? But what I, bo- I do believe, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that we don't want risk. Mm. So I, I, need, I need a good job because at the risk of being homeless. I need to make money because I need to buy a house that is inside of a, a development that has big walls and fences to keep out the bad people. Meanwhile, there's no bad people in miles. I need money because fill in the blanks because every time I uh, – in my, 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 my thought process is every time we need to acquire something, it's taking me and you relationships and it's putting another barrier in front of us. Right. So think about it. You know, when I buy the big house, I buy the big house on the five acres because I'm so worried about Fred Pinto saying good morning to me. Mm. Right. Mm. And I, uh, I get the big job and I put all the money in the bank because I want to be around people like me because I don't want to be associated with other people. Right. And I, I, I find that 
Money is more, and, and mo most people don't talk about it this way, but I think that there's a, a fundamental a premise here that money and power separates us from relationships and people. Mm. I'm wondering, yeah. do we ha have anything there with, with Frankel and relationships and in yes. his thought process? Yes, for sure. So I committed from the standpoint that money is a consequence and not really a cause. So what do I mean by that? I mean that a dollar is not equal to a dollar. That's a lie. That is a huge technical lie. I'll tell you why. If I, I could make a dollar taking a dollar from someone, that's one type of dollar. And I could make a dollar for the sake of argument, delivering a hundred dollars of value for someone. Okay. In both cases, I've made a dollar. They're two completely different dollars existentially. Absolutely. They're different dollars. Mm -hmm. they're, they're dollars that, and I say that because I've witnessed certain things in my practice and in my life with, with some people that I knew very closely and so forth. People who got embroiled in, all, in, in certain, some very high profile scandals and corruption issues and this and that. And you see that some people sometimes did certain things for money. The only reason they did that is because they were very, very focused on the money and they were not focused on what that money meant. All of the strings that were attached to that dollar were invisible to them. And they eventually found out. If I, the reason I wanna buy a house is to be better than other people. And I start living my life that way. It will 100% disconnect me from other people. Other people that I know have been very successful. And for them, the whole purpose of money is to be able to spread the joy and enjoyment of the money, the spoils of money with everybody who couldn't afford it. And they created these beautiful communities around them based on generosity and so forth. Um, by the way, in my life, the latter, um, I'm thinking of two actual, some actual people. Yeah. Um, the people who did it in a generous way were actually a lot more successful business-wise than the former. Okay. I don't doubt it. I don't yeah. doubt it. I do believe that people are who are not attached to money tend to get it easily. A lot more because yeah, they make money that. out of it. So, so for me, we should never stop. We should never start the conversation with money and we should never end it with money. Money is just a tool that could magnify things. It's really always more fundamentally about values. What are your values and are you living in line with your values, right? And so I'm looking for ways in which we can, we can, situate the money question in a broader moral paradigm where what if we can make money while doing good around us? What if we can, somebody who makes money and maintains a strong sense of generosity and desire to create, first of all, makes the money honorably by delivering value for people. And so the market rewards them with money. And on the other hand, uses that money to also do good philanthropic. And if in the middle, they enjoy themselves with the money, I don't see that as bad. I, I see that as that's okay. You know, that, that little bit of like joy that you get from your material things and so forth, you're allowed some of that too. You know, I believe there's generosity at the root of the, of, 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 of the cosmos. It's like, I believe the creation of this, we're getting deep, but the creation of the cosmos to me was an act of giving. That's what it was. It was a push. It was a thrust. Without question, without question. The creative without. act. And so so yeah, without doubt. Good, as long as you're aligned with the right values. And if you're not, I, I would say this, Chris, you could not make money, 
A lot of these positions are also articulated by, be careful here. There is also the existential phenomenon of people who do not um, create a lot of value for whatever reason, do not make a lot of money for a lot of, for, for a number of reasons, and who look at people who have money with resentment and sure. jealousy and envy yeah, sure. and look for ways to rip them down, look for ways to knock them down a peg, look for ways to credit, look for ways to moralize. Well, look, we don't have money, but actually we're morally superior to this person. There is also that game. That is not a virtuous game. <laughs> that is also, um, um, you know, from my perspective, um, you know, a judgmental negative uh, game that you're playing, right? It's like, if you have issues with the fact of where your life is, let's have that conversation. Let's try to help you. Let's, let's move forward from there, right? But knocking people down a peg. So, so the question of money is a huge one, Chris. And, and to me, we always need to situate um, tools inside. The same thing goes with technology. There's nothing good or bad with Facebook. There's something good or bad with how we use Facebook. So we always need to situate tools inside of a broader paradigm of how is it that we use them and what do we use them for? It's never just about the tool. And to me, that's what money is. It's just a tool. So, so let me share with you uh, a, couple, a couple of short uh, uh, riddles, not riddles, but they're uh, moralizing stories, right? And get your, and get your thought and see, see where this fits in with uh, logotherapy. Yeah. So let's talk about the ant, the insect, right? So the ant... Regardless of what you read, read the, read the historical text, read the Bible. It's all throughout the, the Christian Jewish Bible and uh, Islam, right? So, you know, the ant is always talked about as a very uh, diligent, hardworking creature, strong, powerful. It can, uh, you know, go through a picnic and pillage the picnic, even in our little cartoons that our kids watch, right? The, the ant always leaves with food, puts away the food, puts it into the trees, into the ground, always has, uh, always has food when it's uh, a winter day, right? We always know that. And they have no rulers. They have no leaders for the most part. They operate independently. They're self-interested, yes? Now, think about the bee for a second. And the bee, what does the bee do? Well, the bee is... Uh, which is interesting, not talked about in many of these historical texts. What does the bee do? The bee, the bee goes out and the bee goes to the beautiful flowers and it pollinates the flowers. And so the, and so the flowers grow and they become gorgeous and beautiful, right? Then they take that pollen back to the hive where it becomes honey. And that honey now is used to, uh, that honey is provided to the rest of the bees and what's also interesting about the bee, which is so, so different about the ant, is that the bee will lay down its life for all the other bees in the hive, mm -hmm. right? So one, one instinct, uh, in, insect, sorry, I use those interchangeably, one insect takes care of himself, very successful, very diligent, goes out, super successful. Everybody looks at the ant and says, wow, what a powerful, powerful being. The other one goes out, makes the world beautiful. Mm while in the process takes care of their family and takes care of their community. Mm. Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. How does that fit into? It's a beautiful, you know, it's a success. It's a, it's success, right? So these two, these two insects, both successful, but one, in my opinion, I think has meaning 
The what other the one may not. What does the success mean, Chris? That's really the fundamental question. It's not about the success. It's about what are the dynamics around the success? How did the success emerge? And what is it doing to the world? How is it connected to the world? So does success matter? Does it matter? Does it matter? It matters. Absolutely. It matters to the world. It may not matter to the internal participants of a particular system inside of a particular framework. This is really the point, Chris, of logotherapy is that you have a choice. The second premise of logotherapy, first premise of logotherapy, the will to meaning is the deepest drive in human beings. The, the, The desire to be connected to something greater than yourself, to have a clear direction towards the future, that is the deepest drive that we have, that desire. When To the extent that that desire is frustrated, we create all kinds of issues for ourselves. The second one is that we have a freedom to choose. We have the freedom to choose, not everything, I don't have the freedom to choose to become LeBron James. (laughs) We don't have the freedom to choose everything, but we have the freedom to choose what our lives mean to us. And we have the ability to choose how we show up, with what values we show up, and what reality we create around us. And I know in neuroscience today, there's a lot of this this discussion around um, um, uh, freedom of choice and around um, determinism and and so forth, right? And, and from my perspective, it's always like missing the point. It's like, I take our fundamental human experience as a scientific fact in and of itself. Our subjective experience is in itself a scientific fact. And to the extent that some people have said, well, you know, I was living my life in line with, with this value. And then, then I had a moment, I had a choice to make. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to live it more in line. Or I realized that integrity was really important to me. Or I realized that really deep down, like transparency is really important to me. I just prefer living with relationships that are transparent around me. And I realized that I was not being true to my own value. And so I'm gonna start aligning my behavior uh, to my value. Um, And once I started doing that, my relationship started becoming a lot more authentic, a lot more real, a lot more uh, sustainable, a lot more in line with what I believe a relationship should be. Um, And so you qualitatively start building a different life around you than you do when you're, you know, confused about these things yeah. when you refuse to make a choice. You know, I had a friend the other day, we were having a discussion and it's, it's sort of like a classic uh, discussion. I have some of my friends are, are still, I'm 43 years old and I've got, I've got some friends who were like really went the career route and decided to, you know, they didn't want to get married. They didn't want to have kids because, um, because they just wanted to enjoy life. They just wanted to, you know, they loved their career. They wanted to be able to go to the movies whenever they want. They want to be able to go to the restaurant whenever they want. Like they, they didn't want the responsibilities and the diapers and all of that, okay? And, and I went the other dude. I, I married, I have two kids, I, I live the family life, but I understand their perspective too. And they understand my perspective. And I was talking to a friend of mine, we talked to each other, we're always like admiring each other's lives. You know, I'm like, oh my God, you, you're always like traveling all over, all over the world, giving, giving, giving lectures and, and, you know, enjoying life and doing whatever you want. Like I'm in awe of his life and he's in awe of my life. So we're always going back and forth. And he goes, he goes, Fred, no, really like, you know, when you look at someone like you, for me, like you have it all. And what I, what I answered him is like, yeah, but you know, like David, this particular friend, I told him, you know, in order to have it all, I have to sacrifice a lot. <laughs> and none of us have it all. There's no such thing as having it all. Because no matter what choice we make or what choice we don't make, we make a choice in the end. Not making a choice is a choice. Deciding not to make a choice in your career You're making a choice not to commit to a particular career. That is the choice that you're effectively making. None of us get to play this game 
and pretend that we're not playing this game. We're all playing this game. We all make choices all the time. And so, Chris, the question is, if we're going to take responsibility at a fundamental level and recognize, I think there's something really, um, people love this perspective that we actually have no choice and it's all determinism and it's the laws of physics and chemistry. People love that because it lifts the weight of existence off their shoulders, lifts and relieves them of any responsibility over their lives, right? What about the other perspective? What if we adopted the view that fundamentally we do decide what we're about? Fundamentally, we do decide how we show up in the world. We don't have the freedom for everything, but we can choose. We can choose how we show up. We can choose whether or not to align with our core values. We can choose how we behave with others. And this requires like extreme ownership in the words of, of the great American intellectual Jocko Willink, uh, extreme ownership. I own everything, even the things that are not my fault. It's, it's I, I am not responsible, but I own this. If you take extreme ownership over everything in your life, and you start to make those choices in ways that you deeply believe in, that you're deeply aligned with, you qualitatively start building a different fabric of reality around you. One that is imbued with meaning as opposed to one that is imbued with confusion, yeah. disorientation, just being all over the place. And the beauty you know, between the, the analogy that you give me between the ant and the bee, Chris, is that you can choose to be a, an ant and you could live as an ant and that's okay. That's fine. You could make that choice or you can choose to live with meaning. You can choose to build those bridges with, with, with others and with the world and you can choose to live in that world. Yeah. And my yeah. only claim that I make <laughs> is that living with meaning is better than living without it. That's it. Indeed. That's, Indeed. I, there's one claim. Indeed. So, so Fred, in all, all incredible. Based on my personal experience, Chris. No, oh, you know I, what? Living totally with get it. meaning thing bugs the hell out of me. Don't live with meaning. For, for me personally, meaning was the answer to a question I had been asking my whole life. And I would never go back. I, I lived as a hedonist. I view that as hell today. I, I, I was in literally in the sewers of the human mind. And I would never go back. But, but I think your premise is. Meaning equates to more happiness, more magic, more joy, more love, more kind, right? Yes. That's your, that's your, that's your premise. Absolutely. So let me, let me, but let me not tell necessarily, you. Not necessarily. The meaning game is not the happiness game. We're not chasing happiness. Frankl writes, he says, happiness cannot be pursued. Happiness must ensue. It ensues from living a life of meaning. You're not chasing happiness. The experience of, I forgot, I think it was Alan Watts that said, the, 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 the contradiction of, of holding up happiness as your highest ideal is that the very act of chasing happiness is itself an unhappy experience. And the very act of letting go of happiness as, as that big thing that you're pursuing is in itself provides happiness. That's Alan Watts. Okay, so I want, I want you to reconcile for us if you can. Uh, something that's very important. Uh, we've been talking about um, meaning, right? I'm writing this down because I'll forget it because everything we're talking about, I'm going to write about later. So we've been talking about meaning. We've been talking about success. And then I threw in things, right? I'm going to put money into things. Yeah. Okay? It, this, is what, this is what I typically uh, refer to as the triangle of confusion. 
meaning, success, things. Yeah. Because that's because most of us think lots of potential confusion there. Right. So how do we reconcile meaning, success, things? Love that. Love that. So this is where I'm going to go with this. Um, have you ever been, um, have you ever heard of the concept of Ikigai? No. In Japanese culture. Okay. So really, really cool. And this is like the ultimate example of an image is worth a thousand words. Um, there is this great little graph that I'm going to send you, Chris, that just the graph alone, like looking at it for five seconds would be like, it would take 20,000 words, to like properly express what that means, but okay. I'm just going to give it to you super quick. Okay. Okay. So you imagine, so Ikigai is, um, originates in, um, in, um, uh, Okinawa in okay. Japan. Yeah. And it's one of the places where Mr. Miyagi is from. Incidentally, I realized when I was watching Cobra Kai, that's where, <laughs> that's where Mr. Miyagi is from. Um, it's also one of the places on earth that are, um, I forget what they call these places where people live a very, very long time. And when you, when you, when, when, when you talk to people there, it's all about Ikigai for them. Ikigai is like their meaning. Let's say it's like, it's like, it's like, it's called, they loosely translated to mean a reason to live. It's like having a reason to live. Okay. But it's an all-encompassing uh, reason. It's a great way they express it. So if you imagine four concentric circles, okay? One of them is what you love, what you love to do, okay? One of them is what you are good at. They may not be the same thing. I love music. I'm really just not that good at it. But I love doing music, okay? But I'm not that good at it. So there's, there's what you love, what you're good at. And another circle is what the world needs, okay? The world may not need really a ton of what you're good at necessarily, right? Um, a world may not need of what you love, but there's, there's concentric circles, okay? What you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can get paid for. And the inner circle of this diagram where all of the circles intersect is your ikigai. And you, you, you've got words for when like two circles or three circles interact. So, so, so for example, um, you know, something that you love and that the world needs, that can be a vocation, okay? Uh, something that you're good at and that you can get paid for, that could be a profession, right? So th there are different words for what we're talking about. Ikigai is the overlapping um, part of those four things, what you love, your passion, your, this, this could be connected to your meaning in terms of pursuits. Because in logotherapy, there are different things that provide you with meaning. One of the things is pursuits. So things that you create. Frankel calls, they, it comes as the expression of creative values. So writing a book, writing a, uh, composing music. Um, and, and, and Frankel always talks about the pursuit of, of Plato's transcendentals, the good, yeah. the true, and the beautiful, mm -hmm. right? Those are the things. And it's very, very expansive how you, how you can define that for yourself, right? But pursuits, the second one is experiences. Experiences he defines as authentic encounters between you and something that is not you. An encounter is, is an experience where you are whole and where you are encountering something else authentically, right? So that's an experience. It could be in nature. It could be with other human beings. It could be with groups of people. It could be as a nation. It could be, it could be just yourself connecting to the cosmos. That's an experience, right? Where you're completely whole and completely there. And there's a lot of um, overlap there with flow experiences, with, uh, with all the research about flow states. Uh, that's, that's for another time. 
And then there's the third thing that provides meaning is your attitude, your mindset, having the mindset of meaning. And the mindset of meaning is no matter what happens to me, it's something that goes beyond any amount of adversity. No matter what happens to me, I get to choose what it means to me and how I show up. The stand that I take, that is something that nobody and no circumstance can rob from me. It's a fundamental human freedom. And it's my fundamental ability to do that. That in itself generates meaning. So when you look at the pandemic, whatever, the questions you can ask yourself, what are the opportunities here? Yeah. What is the opportunity to create meaning? What is the hidden gift in this? These are the questions that lead you towards meaning. So going back to your question about the conflict between, between, between the three, between you had meaning, you had success, and you had things, right? So if you could find your ikigai, <laughs> which is a really big if. Guys mm -hmm. like us, Chris, you know, we started in professional services um, because we were good at it, we can get paid for it. But is it, is, was all of it stuff that I loved? No, what I really loved was learning, learning and teaching. That's what I really loved. So for me to start um, orienting my practice around educational services rather than professional services, right? Where I manually create the deliverables as opposed to that building that I'm getting closer to my Ikigai because I'm mixing in a whole lot more of what I love, right? And what I love, yeah. and then, but it also has to be stuff that I'm good at. If I want to start learning and teaching about um, mm. biology, you can, I mean, I'm really not that good at it. You can get way better, like, like knowledge, somebody who's really extensively studied biology and anatomy and so forth. There are only a certain number of things that I'm really good at. So you start to narrow down and you start to look for the overlapping. And it's a great graphic. I'm going to send it to you. You start to look for the overlapping. And as finding that overlapping, Chris, first of all, each one creates a narrow path, but the path where they all converge is really, really narrow, where it can really only be a couple of things, right? And that's the zone that's going to generate meaning without the tension. This, this touches some of the stuff we're talking about in my class and some of the things that I just think are so important for people. You started in professional services. Uh, yeah. You got your law degree. Yeah. You learned from a book. Yeah, that's right. You did, right? You, you had no experience. You're like, oh, I'm going to read this book. Okay, I think I could do this. That's right. For many, and it, many and years. It, yeah, and, and you showed up for work and you learned practical experience. This, by the way, this is virtue. These are uh, virtue ethics by Aristotle. That's right, right 100%. So great, the great Tony Robbins. You, you want to learn about swimming. You can read books about swimming all day or you can you jump, jump in. You got to jump in, right? It's okay to go in. learn how to, let's go, let's go learn how to, the, the stroke, right? Great. But you got to jump in the pool, practical experience. Pool. But, but then what happens is you do it for a period of time. You're like, wow, I can master the side stroke. I can master the breast. I can master the back. But then something happens, which is dramatical, which is, in my opinion, you're there, right? Is you go from practical mastery. Yeah. To now you get an opportunity to see the entire space. You're no longer looking at, let me go jump in the pool and do a backstroke. What you're do what you're doing is you're looking at the water and you're like, a little choppy today, winds coming in at X knots, right? Little, 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 little water behind my back today. And as a lawyer, right? And I look, I can I can honestly speak from this because I, I have now worked with hundreds, if not thousands, of lawyers. I can tell the ones that have uh, that are calling it in, dialing it in, right? I don't really care. 
job they have, a, they have a practical practical knowledge then i've seen some who have an incredible technical knowledge and then i see the fred pintos of the world where instantly right i can talk to you and we can have a view of the world if i take this case on here are all my issues and you you can almost summarize that in five minutes or less. But but Chris, you know why? You know what, what? 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 First of all, thank you. But you know what created those breakthroughs for me? It was not a technical um, a breakthrough at all. It okay. was not that. It was an it was an existential breakthrough at the level of purpose. I'll tell you what it was. Okay. So I, the way I'm wired, I'm I'm in the big five personality scale. I'm really really low in agreeableness. Okay, like my natural predisposition when people talk is like, no, that's not true. I disagree. I disagree. 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 But I disagree with myself too all the time. So it's like I'm al I'm always always trying to chop things down. That's just the way my intellect is built. It's it's in the big five personality scale. So same thing in my practice, Chris. It's like I I, I went through my practice and just in the back of my mind, it's always like, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Like, who cares what you're doing? Who cares? Who cares? And really, I realized like my desire for money is, is very, what I can do with money is very limited. Like you can enjoy a really nice life with a certain amount of money. But beyond that, it's like, what really is it delivering for me? It's not satisfying to me. And the answer came in as purpose in my work life, Chris, and purpose, that was two words, two words, two words, that I'm like, I really care about that. And I will go to no end. Because if you're not sure why you care, if it's only money, I'm going to say, there is no great athlete, no great Elon Musk, Steve Jobs. There's not a single one of these guys. Money is not enough of a motivation to be that great. It's not enough. It doesn't give you enough emotional fuel. It's not true. There are only so many steaks you can eat in a day. There's only so much joy you get from riding in a, in a private jet. It's the fuel is not deep enough. You need to be connected at a deep emotional level. For yes. me, it was this, Chris. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. But this is, this is where the, the Aristotelian view comes in because this is Aristotle. When you get to that place where you can see your just your industry, just your particular skill, you then start to say to yourself, "Wait a second! Look at all these people over here that yeah. are getting awful legal services." Yeah. Right. And 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 so what happens is you care less. Your your drive becomes less about making a buck. Yeah. And your drive now comes. Look at the lack of justice that's going on yeah. over here and helping it's people. And that's out there, something the world needs. This, and and this, is what he, this is what he would refer to as, as, as uh, character virtues, right? So you, you build upon these things where you get to character virtues, which then gives you, uh, I'm Fred Pinto, I now care about other things, right? So we oh, maybe, I don't know, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Maybe we all start with, yeah, of course, I need, I need to make a skill. I got to have a skill to make some money. That's right. And then from that, we learn, we grow, we build character. We learn, we grow. And eventually- then helps everything. Eventually, we need to connect to the bigger picture. Eventually, we need something, either values or some mission or some perspective or some reason that is outside of ourselves. Yes. That is bigger than ourselves and that feeds it us so deep. And for me, it was helping small, medium-sized business owners, helping entrepreneurs. That is, that was, you know, before I had that insight, Chris- I got it through the Tony Robbins system. Before that insight, 
I was chasing a lot of like larger companies. I was doing business for a lot of multinationals, a lot of public companies. And I, I had reached that level as an IP lawyer. I was doing work for, to me, the top companies in like in my industry and whatever. And I was like, I was satisfied by that because I saw myself as a technician. But when I realized that what I really cared about was helping entrepreneurs, that's, that's really what cuts it for me. And the reason for that, there's a personal reason. So this is how I define why. I define why as where your personal reasons meet impact. Impact is benefit to others to, and somebody else, okay? But I have my personal reasons and then there's benefit to others. Where those two things meet, this is your why, okay? For me, my personal reason was growing up as a um, lower middle class Jewish guy, my immigrant family from Morocco, my, the adults around me were eff effectively non, non-employable. They didn't have university education. They were all small business owners and they were always like confused by everything. And they were always like their businesses were very fragile. Um, when they'd receive a letter from the government, that was like oh my a natural disaster. Yeah. When a big company would come, when a union would come for them, that was like, that was the natural disaster. That was the equivalent of a tornado. Okay. For like yeah. a, a, somebody with a fruit stand. Okay. And to me, like when I, I eventually did my academic background, whatever, I went through law school and so forth, master's in law, I had pushed that. I find it very intellectually satisfying. When I got to a point where I could help small business owners manage their situation, that it doesn't, it's no longer a natural disaster. In fact, you could even navigate that world in a way that is every bit as sophisticated and as smart as the biggest players. I feel like I'm helping my father with his small struggling business. I feel like I'm helping my uncle with his, that, that's how I feel. It, it, it cuts so yeah. deep in me, helping the small business owner. It provides me with meaning. And the impact is there are a bunch of amazing people out there, small business owners who are um, in a lot of adversity because of big business and big government. And they don't have the, the, the sophisticated, they don't have necessarily the, the budgets and they don't have necessarily the, the experience to manage. If we can develop solutions for them, where we help them really powerfully, that's that where you, a yes to me. Yes. That's a yes. That yes. is something that is yes. worthwhile. That would make my life worthwhile. Yes. That's where you and I kind of converge, right? Because we had a similar, similar pattern. I had the opportunity to work in private equity, venture. Yeah, it was fun, right? Can they, people tell me, you're leaving what? You're leaving that, that environment. Yeah, it's not for me. It didn't, I mean, don't get me wrong. I learned a lot. Learned, you, know, you and I work on valuation work together. It, it, it taught me the basics. And then from that, I learned, well, there's problems. So I, so I learned a practical knowledge in my MBA program. Then I, then I applied it some more. Then I learned theoretical. Then I became really good at it. Right? Everybody knew that, that, that worked for me in the private equity. Well, I was really good at this. Yeah. But it just wasn't enough, right? It was, you got paid, you got paid a lot of money, right? And I was like, mm, nah. And then- Somehow, scratch that itch. Right? Somehow, I, 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 I got caught into the, in, into the industry of, and again, it was just because I didn't want to work as much. I started doing forensic work. And boom, character virtues kicked in because then I started to say, look at all of these small businesses. And, and that's, you know, you, I, I spend a lot of time on the small business too, like you. I see all these small businesses that are being taken advantage of yeah. by large corporations, by, That's right. by bad actors, by, yeah. um, and, and, and to me, it's like, wait, 
I could take all of these skills that I learned that I didn't really think I was going to add real value. And now I can offer them in an encapsulated in a capsule and in an offering and a service that has dramatically changed the way that I think about my industry. Mm. It develops that character virtues that I think, you know, Aristotle really talks about and pushes pretty hard because you won't find me in his position. You won't find meaning unless you have both intellectual and character virtues. A hundred percent. Those yeah. character values are the, the, the very, very uh, close. What, what Aristotle's uh, system of, of, of virtues, character virtues, is just a very, very sophisticated system to figure out your core values. I, yeah, I think it's, it's, not, it's, it's hard to understand. Values sure. is a little bit more general, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, I think the next level, like the, the 101 is finding your core values and like the 201 and 301 would be Aristotle's system of, of figuring out uh, the, those character virtues that he defines in, in a very, very, um, you know, as, as, you know, a synthesis of, 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 of opposites that are extremes. And then the synthesis is where the quality is. That's a really, really nice, sophisticated system of figuring out um, your core, core qualities and virtues. It's a yeah. great, great, great exercise. So, you know, people don't have to figure it all out in one fell swoop. It's like, yes, yes. there's the what dimension. There's like, okay, what am I going to do? There's the, the career question, which is really significant because you've got to start building on things that you're good at. You can't neglect the technical dimension. You can't neglect what is it that you have to give to the world that the world will be willing to pay for. That's a question we all have to answer honestly with ourselves. And it's about some, some, some piece of it is genetics. Some piece of it is our educational opportunities when we're young. Some piece of it is our work ethic and so on and so forth. But we've got to, we've got to figure that out. And there are stages of evolution and you need to build your edifice on that. But the beauty is I find you can be in um, an industry or in a place where there's tremendous moral hazards. Okay. And certainly I would define um, um, law as one of those environments where the opportunity is the agency problem, right? The, the opportunities to behave in an unethical way and make money are so many full that it just blends very badly with human nature. And that just becomes an industry that is full of moral hazard. You see that in uh, the financial industry as well. You see that in government friggin' like so much, right? So, so you could, you could even be in a place that on the face of it doesn't promote uh, the development of authentic values that you, that you, um, that you uh, look up to, but that was ju that's just the way the cookie crumbled. That's just the way that your career went. And you can, you can find ways to play that game in alignment with your core values. You can live your meaning in your life around you, first of all, in a way that is that really, really high integrity and in line with um, you know, your, your inner sense of purpose. And you can also do whatever it is that you do um, in alignment with core values. It doesn't need to change your what, the how you do it. But, but Chris, this is also, let's, let's not be too idealistic here. There may also come a point where the world presents a dilemma to you that shows you that there's a fundamental disconnect between the path that you're on and the path you would need to be on in order to live authentically with yourself. And if you are at one of those junctures in time, you're going to have a choice to make for yourself. It may reveal itself as a sacrifice. You may have to sacrifice something in order to, but I have a very, very deep rooted faith and, and profound, profound conviction that the right thing to do is to live in alignment with your core values, yeah. in alignment yeah. with your sense of purpose and not to let the mind create these. Well, if I do that, it's going to be against my self-interest. It's going to be, 
in alignment with your broader self-interest from a long-term perspective. And you've got to confront that with faith and the quality that you need in those moments is courage and faith in the face yeah. of uncertainty. And that is something that, 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 you know, let's not fool ourselves here. Indeed. There, yeah. there is a level of the game where it, it will manifest itself to you as a war. And you've got to be a faithful, courageous warrior and do the right thing. Fred, this has been awesome. <laughs> yeah, we've, been, we've been talking literally for, I don't know, hour and 40 minutes, nonstop. And I think I, I could probably go, <laughs> I can go all day. Um, if there was one thing that you can share, uh, primarily with young uh, college age, uh, career-minded people, um, one thing that you can share, take away from yeah. our friend Victor Frankel yeah. and Logotherapy, what would it be? It would be, um, for, forget everything we've talked about. Um, sit back and remember, everything you need to live a meaningful life is inside of you. Nobody can give it to you. Meaning is not given. Meaning is not handed down by any guru, by any mentor, by any professor, by any book, by any theorist, by any psychologist. Forget that. Meaning is inside of you. You have everything inside of you that you need to live a meaningful life. The first act you need to accept to really step into is an act of remembering. Remember, use your memory. Yeah. Think back. That, that'll be your first big meaning clue. And then your second step is going to be <laughs> ask yourself, why am I not living with more meaning? Why is it? What has made me forget? What is creating a competing theory of existence? What idol am I worshiping that is preventing me from doing the things that matter? This requires vulnerability. It requires honesty with yourself. It requires taking responsibility and it requires ownership. But the, the beauty of that and the reward of that is that all you're gonna do if you rectify your behavior and start living in line with your deep sense of purpose, the only thing that's gonna happen, I'm almost tempted to, to quote Karl Marx, which is really like, <laughs> I am not, a, I am a libertarian, like super free market, but I just love the last line in Das Capital. You have nothing to lose but your chains. <laughs> the beauty is you've got nothing to yeah. lose but your meaning traps. That's the only thing you're gonna lose. So what's probably required is a little bit of courage, a little bit of faith, and, and, and you can do it. The rewards are there, but you've got, to, you've got to confront the uncertainty with courage, and that requires a little bit of faith. So uh, you're going to have my, to do it without evidence. So, my friend, awesome, inspirational, exciting to me. You know, I, 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 every time I sit down with you, I learn more. And it's mutual, man. Inside, it's beautiful. It's incredible. The more you share, the more I learn, the more I can take your information and share it. I so appreciate you being on this podcast and uh, sharing your experiences. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Chris. Always right. a pleasure. And I'm always here. Whenever you want to have one of these chats, I I'm in. Uh, this yeah, is man. It, uh, this, is, this is great. Made my weekend. Super. Same here. Thanks, buddy.